Welcome, sensualists, lyricists, emotionalists, and joyfulists. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm excited by today's show because we're talking with Lisa Cross-Smith, who has been one of my favorite authors for several years. And I'm with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And and Brooke, you've been my very favorite co-host for several years. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Grant. (laughs) Brooke, I initially fell in love with Lisa's flash fiction, which was inventive and poetic and uniquely and joyously sensuous. In fact, I think of her as one of my favorite sensual authors. And when I I say sensual, I want to clarify that a bit. We often think of the sensual as being the sexual, and that is the case in, in some of Lisa's work, but Lisa's prose is sensual in the broader sense as well. She's just very alive to the sounds, smells, and tastes of the world, so her stories almost seem constructed around a lyrical and sensual experience of the world to me. And and one thing that I particularly appreciate about her stories is how her character's sensuality leads them to good places, whereas so often in American literature, people are kind of punished for their pleasures. Um, I don't know if that's part of an American puritanical strain, but women tend to be especially punished for their desires. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, where do we begin with this double standard? Um, You know, I just finished leading an online book club called Feminist Foundations. And one of the books we picked for that was Erica Jong's Fear of Flying, which is a celebration of sexual abandonment for which Jong was lauded in many circles, certainly. um, But also it was a controversy, very much so in its day and continuing on. Um, But meanwhile, you know, her contemporaries were given a lot more latitude, men like Philip Roth and John Updike, who were being hailed for essentially doing exactly what Erica Jong was doing. It was just more acceptable because they were men. And uh, since you got me on this topic, I just thought it would be interesting to go through, you know, some other novels that women have been condemned, you know, uh, famously so, right, for being sexual, like Hester Prynne, who's convicted of adultery, right, in The Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. or Emma Bovary in Flaubert's Madame Bovary, whose primary flaw really is just being a romantic, but it's that trait that leads her to having two affairs and then to getting herself into debt and ultimately committing suicide. And women are often killing themselves in fiction over uh, sex and men, disturbingly, uh, in Jeffrey Eugenides, uh, The Virgin Suicides. For people who have read it, it's also a book. You know, the sisters live in this very repressive household with a religious mother. And after one of the sisters kills herself, the other four sisters who are left are really sexualized to the point of objectification throughout the novel. So when one of the sisters, Lux, has sex with a boy at school, he's disgusted by her. And it's this event that causes a lockdown bordering on house arrest for the girls by their parents. Um, you know, and then the girls lure the boys from school to their house, only they get there to witness the sisters' suicide pact in which all four sisters kill themselves in different ways, you know, hardly an uplifting story. But I thought I would just note a few of these more famous examples. Uh, you know, there are countless hundreds of stories like these that seem to imply that women's narratives are all about their relationship to the sex they do or do not have. Yeah. And and by contrast, when I think of Lisa's characters, I tend to think of the ways they take unabashed delight in their desires, and they're generally not punished for that desire. And I want to just read a couple of passages to illustrate, you know, her writing in, in the story. Fast as you, the narrator, a nanny for a country music star named Tucker, dresses up for him and she flirts. And in this passage, I think Lisa really captures a moment of sensuous yearning. Here goes. I thought about him thinking about me, thinking about me differently than just Emmy Lou's nanny. 
thinking about my body and my legs and what was under my little skirt. And I was thinking about his arms and his shirt, how I cut off the sleeves for him those nights he was on stage sweating and singing his perfect, cute, fat ass. I think that passage, you know, it's so simple in some ways, but it captures so much yearning through specific imagery. And I, and I love how she gets in details like the sleeves she cut off and her thinking about the way he thinks of her as a way to feel her own yearning. So I think she does that so well. But I want to note, you know, that her sensuality isn't just sexual. One of my favorite stories in her collection is the story Girl Heart Cake with Glitter Frosting. And this mimics a recipe, but it's a story actually just told through one long list of things. But I think that that list of things becomes its own central rundown of what it means to be a teen girl. And I'm just going to read the beginning, but you can imagine this going on for like two pages. It begins, possible ingredients, too much black eyeliner, roses, champagne from a can, champagne in a bottle, music to watch boys to by Lena Del Rey. And then the story, yeah, goes on to list more singers, authors, celebrities, things to eat, <laughs> lip balm, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, objects of desire. And, and it just goes on for a couple pages, but it creates this like little sensual universe of a teen girl. Yeah. And when we talk with her, listeners are going to see, I mean, she's really quite a lyricist. You know, she just has all of these words at her disposal. She seems to be quite the list maker, you know, just by with such ease. Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like I have like that kind of easy access, you know, on the fly. So I really, I love that. Um, and one of the things that makes the sensuality of Lisa's prose different is that playfulness that she brings to her writing. You know, you can hear that even in the list that you were just reading. It's fun. In a story I liked called Pink Bubblegum and Flowers, the first line goes, sweet, sticky pink bubblegum in my mouth, blowing bubbles, bored, peeking on the guys dad paid to come over to rebuild the deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lesson there in writing the sensual. She establishes the mood of sweet pink bubblegum, the innocence, you know, the sugar, and then that leads to watching the men work. And so it's sexual desire presented through this bubblegum viewpoint. And it's, you know, it's transgressive, but it's kind of innocent at the same time. And it doesn't put the woman in or the girl in this case, you know, in a cast her in a negative sort of slut shaming light, which I think is so often the case, right? And so that's refreshing. Um, and her writing is steeped in that feminine and imagery, and I think a feminist imagery. So everything from you know fruit flavored lip gloss and herbal essences, shampoo. She's she's got it all. <laughs> yeah, I love that uh, your observation about her playfulness, and I, I also think that what makes her writing work and her her the sensuality in her writing work is the, the tool of evocation in her writing. You know, I just finished my book, actually, or I hope I finished it. I haven't gotten a final word from my editor. Uh, it's called The Art of Brevity, and it's due out in 2023. So I've been, I've been thinking a lot about what we leave out of a story and how that's as important as what we put into a story. And I'm particularly interested in these super tiny stories that some might not even actually call stories. And I'm going to test you with one, Brooke. Lisa's story you should love the right things, reads in its entirety, not how it hurts when you press down on a yellowish blue, purple, black bruise, but the feeling you get when you lift up, let go. So that's the entire story. Or is it a story? What do you think? Well, people know, I think that we interview the author's 
before our banter. And so I think I have to say that because I listened Uh to Lisa, I know, I know her (laughs) answer, but you know, even you had prompted me with this because obviously we share some show notes with each other. And even before I heard her answer, I said, yes, you know, I mean, my answer was absolutely (laughs) written here on Mm -hmm. the page. Right. But a, a story has a very simple definition. So like I looked it up last night, it says an account of past events in someone's life or in the evolution of something. So if something happened to you and you experience something, then it's a story, even if it's only a line or two. And, you know, because James is 11, sometimes that's the most story I get from him. (laughs) You know, I get a line or two and I have a window into his world with his short accounts. And so that's what I thought when I read that. And, you know, it's evocative. It's a moment. I mean, it opens up so many possibilities of what it might mean. And actually what I thought it meant for myself is not what Lisa says when we get to the interview. So I think that's also really amazing too, you know, by way of interpretation, what you can interpret from a simple line. Hmm. Yeah. I, lo- I love your observation, Brooke, that the kids are kind of natural masters of flash fiction. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they know those tools of evocation. Um, we have to evoke a lot sometimes, but yeah, for me, this, this, this is definitely a story. I think of it as a haiku of a story, a poem of a story, really. But I consider it a story, though, because I, I even see one definition that I hear of stories is does it have a beginning, middle, and end and a character change? And I think of the bruise being the beginning, you know, the pressing down on the bruise and the question of what the motive is behind that as being the middle, and then the feeling afterward, which is a sort of character change. It relies on evocation and the, and the reader, you know, the reader has to fill in the blanks, obviously, but it's, it's a sensuous moment and that moment between pain and pleasure and I think the act of pressing down and releasing is a metaphor for a type of love. Um, it reminds me of, of six-word memoirs. If you've ever read those, the story relies on the, the reader's imagination. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've been talking about Lisa's short stories, um, but it's important to note that she's been writing novels of late. She published uh, one called This Close to OK in 2021, and then she just published Half Blown Rose, which I didn't realize was a Jane Eyre reference. Uh, so pretty cool. So kudos to her and pretty exciting and not only for her, but for her future readers as well. Yeah. And I, I want to note that she brings the sensuality that's so apparent in her short stories to her long work, uh, which isn't always easy to do. I think with short stories, it's easier to focus on the, the poetry of a story. And it's easier, at least for me, to focus on omission and evocation. So her novels uh, are a really good lesson in how to bridge, you know, those tools of brevity with the tools of length and tell that again, that very sensual story. Well, I can't wait to talk more with Lisa about writing short and long (laughs) and writing a novel that takes place in Paris too. Yeah. I always joke that writers should set a novel in a place they want to research and possibly go to. So we'll hear more from Lisa after this incredibly short break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest because I've admired her writing for several years now. Lisa Cross-Smith is a homemaker and writer from Kentucky. She is the author of This Close to OK, So We Can Glow, Whiskey and Ribbons, Every Kiss of War, and the new novel, Half Blown Rose, from Grand Central Publishing. This Close to OK was a Goodreads Choice 2021 nominee for Best Fiction, and So We Can Glow was listed as one of NPR's Best Books of 2020. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, Lisa, my introduction to your writing was through your flash fiction. And in a craft essay you contributed to Smoke Long Quarterly in 2016, you wrote, flash fiction is where I get my quick and dirty. So now that you're, you're writing novels, what has drawn you to longer stories? And do you find that you can still manage to get your quick and dirty in novels, actually? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I really just cut my teeth on flash fiction, both reading and, you know, and writing it when I was stepping into the publishing world. And um, yeah, I still really love to read it. I'm, I'm not writing it primarily um, to make money for my, you know, my job as a, as a writer. I've just sort of shifted to novels. Um, just, I don't know, for lack of a better word, just making my life a little bit easier right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have two short story collections and I feel very grateful to have those. But um, to be honest, I got kind of tired of trying to pitch and sell short stories for people who weren't that interested in short stories. Um, novels really do sell better and a lot of, um, you know, and, and so really I, it was an easy switch for me, although my heart, I love flash fiction. I love writing short fiction, but um, in the publishing world, when I was really setting out to get books published, um, novels just made the most sense to me. So I really do love, I love them both so much, but they're, so much the same and so much different, but um, yeah, I've just decided to focus on novels right now. Although um, short fiction will always have my heart. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, I think very few people have made a you know significant money off of flash fiction. Certainly, <laughs> or, I don't know what significant even means in the context of flash fiction. But I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. I think we're gonna talk a little bit about flash fiction if you'll you know, bear with us. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, my follow-up regards one of your stories, You Should Love the Right Things. And, and Brooke and I were talking about this a little bit before you came on. And since I run a 100-word story, the website and the literary journal, I often get asked, you know, can you write a story in just 100 words? So I'm always curious how people define what a story is. And I think this is actually one of my favorite stories of yours. So it reads just for listeners' sake, not how it hurts when you press down on a yellowish-blue, purple-black bruise but the feeling you get when you lift up, let go. How is that a story? <laughs> Good question. Or is it a story? <laughs> yeah. You know, in terms of what is, or, you know, the things that are and aren't stories. Um, I don't know. I like that conversation. Um, I, I hear someone, if they feel like that's not a story, it is to me. And I feel like that matters. I feel like that's significant because I'm the artist and I'm the writer. Um, but also if a reader feels like it's not a story, that's their opinion. Um, I, I really do write a lot from feeling and, and, and I don't mean this sort of vague, just always stay up in the clouds feeling, but I, it comes from a point of feeling. And that is a story that I just felt and I, I, I also feel like the reader can get the feeling. Mm -hmm. So that's part of storytelling for me to a feeling. You may not be able to explain it. You might not always know exactly what's going on, but, but I think that you can feel it. And so that's a, that's just, you know, that is one example of a story that I've written that is really just pure feeling. And I think that if you read it, you can get it um, in terms of loving the feeling of something when it hurts are loving the feeling of something that has hurt, but now is healing. Um, I could have written it like that too, like I just said it, but I didn't want to. I wanted to just make it a couple sentences long. 
Well, thanks for that, Lisa. Um, you know, I, we we found that so many of your stories define themselves around poetry, around sensuality, and Roxanne Gay and praising your collection. So we can glow. Described your stories in a very sensual way too. She said um, these are stories about breathless love, lustful abandon, and all that glitters, hot summers, cool pavements, sticky skin, <laughs> beautiful beating hearts, really lovely. So one of the things I've noticed about your writing is that you catch all these little moments of desire between characters, whether you're writing long or short. So could you talk about the role of the sensual in your aesthetic? Um, Yeah, I really, I, I love writing about intimacy. I love writing about um longing. Um, I love writing characters who are, um, even if they're not saying it out loud, I love being completely honest in their inner thoughts. And this leads to longer, different conversation about whether someone is likable or whether someone is relatable. Um, I don't really concern myself with those things. I want my characters to say what they really feel in their hearts, even if they don't say it out loud. So, um, and sometimes those thoughts are inappropriate. Hmm. (laughs) Sometimes I'm writing about a married woman and, you know, there's a story and so we can glow. It's a married woman. Her husband brings his friend home from work and she just starts thinking and thoughts about his friend. Um, it's not something she's saying out loud right immediately when she's thinking them, but she's being honest with herself and she's being honest with the reader. Um, I specifically like writing about women's desire. Um, we've had enough about men's desire. We've had enough of that. I'm fine with that. Let's talk about women's desire, um, which is a lot the same and also a lot different. And so I really love writing about longing and women who are brave enough to be honest with themselves and be honest with the people around them. And also it's just fun for me. I get quite bored if I'm reading something there's absolutely no um, like no sexual tension at all I will just get bored it's just what I like and so in order to maintain um the level of obsession and the work I have to put into my own work um I just like writing about that because I get bored if I don't put a little of it in there so then I put a little of it in all of my stories well, one thing that helps me write both more lyrically and more sensually is music. And I know that you always make a playlist to listen to, you know, while you're working on everything. And there are actual playlists in Half Blown Rose, your new novel. So I was wondering if you can you can share how you create your playlists. Are you, are you searching for a particular mood or do you choose different songs for different characters or chapters? Yeah, I mean... I, I really can't listen to a lot of music while I'm writing. I can't listen to music with words in English. So I listen to a lot of Korean music so I can listen to foreign um, languages. Um, although I'm learning Korean now, so I have to switch because I can't. I, if I start to understand it, then it um, disrupts my writing. I like to listen to instrumental music and scores and soundtracks. But um, but then, yes, um, as, I, as I'm writing, I will make a list of songs and then I put them all um I'll put them all online or on my website so that people can listen to. Um, in Half Blown Rose, specifically, I have put the playlist inside of the book. So I believe there's 15 or 16. I may have taken one out, but um, actual playlists listed out so that um, and then um, when the book comes out, those playlists will be made public if people want to listen along. But um, yeah, the same thing I was saying before about short fiction. I'm usually going for a mood. Absolutely. Um, and then um, my character Vincent in Half Blown Rose, she's living in Paris. So there's a lot of French music. Um, there's also she takes a young French lover when she's over there. And so she also um, 
is thinking of a lot of songs that would speak to her and would speak to him. And they end up sort of making this playlist together. It's called Lust in Conversation. And um, and that's also in the book. So yeah, it's usually just like a vibe. I don't like saying that because I know people want to hear like a real answer, but. That was great. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. For me, when it comes to, to music, it's the same way, you know, if you're having a dinner party or you're on a drive or you're going for a run, you just like kind of just are in the mood for these songs. And, and that's what I try to do. And that's just selfish. It's just the songs that I like and want to put in there and the music I think is good. Oh, that's, it's fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, well, Half Blown Rose comes from a poem. Uh, I'm intrigued by the role, the phrase plays in your main character, Vincent's life versus a tattoo, then as the title of her husband's novel, which then divides their marriage. Um, so could you talk a little bit about integrating that? I mean, I, I talk with my authors a lot about that kind of how it, how a title permeates through a book. Yeah, I specifically took um, the phrase half-blown rose from um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Mm. Um, it had been used, yeah, it had been used before in a couple in a couple poems. But the one that really stuck with me was um, when um, Jane speaks of Rochester and, ha- and, and Jane Eyre. And she said he gathered a half-blown rose, the first on the bush, and, and, and offered it to me. Um, I just love the phrase half-blown rose. I, I just think it's beautiful. And I just love flowers. So I'm always drawn to any mention of flowers. But specifically, Vincent, my character, her husband, Killian, has written a book called Half-Blown Rose. And... In the book, he has divulged secrets that he didn't bother taking the time to tell her during their 25-year relationship. And so and she also has a tattoo half-blown rose. So it's something that really means something to her. Her husband has now stolen it and turned it into his thing. But the, the idea of a bud, a rose bud, and the idea of a full-blown rose, those are two different things. But the idea of a half-blown rose really interests me because it is in the process of becoming something. Um, what will it become? It, it is in a liminal space. I speak often of liminal spaces in the book because I love liminal spaces, rental cars and um, airplanes and airports and, and stairwells and hallways, um, things that aren't meant to last, elevators, like things that can happen in those liminal spaces, the physical spaces, but also spaces of the heart, emotional spaces. And so Vincent is in a really liminal space emotionally because she doesn't know if she's going to stay with her husband after his betrayal. And then physically in Paris, she doesn't live in Paris. Um, she usually doesn't live in Paris, but her parents are very well off and they have an apartment, um, an empty apartment, and she's gone to stay there. So that's a liminal space for her too. And so um, Half Blown Rose being in between, Vincent also being in between, she takes a lover. What will that be? That's an in-between. Um, I, I wanted to write a lot about liminal spaces and in between. And then I just love the phrase half blown rose. And it was really just kind of magic how it all came together. I loved listening to you just listing liminal spaces. <laughs> um, I, I want to now make a master list or an ongoing <laughs> list of liminal spaces because they are there. That's where so much interesting drama happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your novel takes place in Paris, but it's got Kentucky roots as you do. And I come from a state, Iowa, which I think is often misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just curious. I have to ask this question because I also have a friend who lives, one of my best friends lives in Kentucky. If you see Kentucky that way, and if so, what would you like people to know about Kentucky and why might it be a good place for a writer to live? <laughs> yeah, well, first I want to say um, a good place for a writer to live is because if you if people know anything about the South, we love stories. We really do love stories and storytelling. I mean, and, and, and everyone does, right? But I mean, there's just a certain 
there's just a different slant to storytelling down in the South. The long stories on the front porch or over sweet tea or, or just stories that are passed on um, the history of our country. Um, so much of that stuff is passed on down here between families and, and friends and people. Um, yeah, I definitely think Kentucky is misunderstood. Someone said to me once they'd never even pictured black people living in Kentucky, which is just like, wow, there are a whole, whole, whole lot of black people living in Kentucky. Same way they live everywhere. Um, but yeah, I know people just don't think about it. I mean, really, and when I travel all over the world, it's just you know chicken kentucky fried chicken so people have heard of kentucky but it's always just about chicken which which is which is fine too that's just one way to approach it but there are just a lot of different ways to look at kentucky that we have tons of horses it is super super country with people barefoot in the holler and and coal mining and 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 loretta lynn and those things and basketball college basketball but then also there are major metropolitan area you know areas in kentucky too so it's a little bit of everything like every other state but you know um i don't know it just kind of turns into a joke and people always have to have like a joke about about something but i've lived here born and raised and um in Louisville and Kentucky and my whole life. And, um, and so that's why I proudly put it into my books. Look, just a regular person living her life. And she's also from Kentucky. I mean, imagine that. Well, Lisa, I want to ask you a different kind of question. It's about the internet. It's so easy to bash online stuff and to assume the worst of it, especially when it comes to social media. So I thought it was really interesting when I read that the internet served as a type of MFA program for you. So could you talk a little (laughs) bit more about how that was so? Yeah, well, I really just could not at the time afford to go back to school to get my MFA, meaning that I had gotten a free ride for my undergrad and I just didn't want to pay to go to grad school. And when I saw how much it cost, it was just unbelievable. Believable. It kind of blew my mind that it cost so much money to, uh, you know, uh, sit around with other writers and, and read and write and get feedback. And so I just decided I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to spend, I didn't want to go into debt for it. I didn't want to spend, um, money on it in that way, um, money that I didn't have at the time in, in that way. So I was just curious as to what they, what people were doing in MFA classes, because I really did not know. I took creative writing classes as an undergrad and getting my English degree, but I didn't know what the focus was with, with some MFA programs. I really had no clue. And so, I, you know, after looking around, I had girlfriends who were, um, who were in MFA programs. And I remember my girlfriend telling me, yeah, we read one collection of short stories or something and then a craft book. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that's what I do. And then, then I was reading around and the books that I saw on the syllabus for some things I I was like that, you know, that's also what I'm doing. Those are books I've already read. Um, And so I just was like, I'm just going to read these books and I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write and write and write and write this time that I would be spending in class. if, If I were in class, but I'm not, I would be writing. And it was my husband eventually told me to stop reading craft books and just to, just to write instead. And I really needed him to tell me that because I felt like maybe there was something I was missing. Oh man, if someone has an MFA, do they know this thing? I do not know. It's absolutely not true. Um, And so, yeah, I just started writing instead. And so I just, um, just wrote hundreds and hundreds of stories um, and then, you know, started submitting them. So that is kind of how, so there was this, um, there's this writer, this woman, and she was like, I stole my MFA from, from the internet or something like that. And, and that might be what you're talking about because I just thought that was funny. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't say that it's funny that she said, it um it's now how I frame it but but I did poke around and see what people are doing and then just did that and now here we are that's a good story <laughs> and you saved a lot of money in doing it <laughs> sure did <laughs> and you would, you would have just been sitting there in the MFA program writing flash fiction the whole time anyway so. <laughs> and I 
definitely do not want to discourage people. A lot of people need that. I see people saying they need that. They need the encouragement. They need that because of discipline. I personally did not need that. I personally do not need that. So I think that they're really great that they're available for some people. I just didn't need to do that. So I did want to add that. Yeah, totally. Thank you for doing that. I don't mm-hmm. want to bash them either. I actually got an <laughs> MFA, so who am I to say that? In closing, Lisa, I've, I've read that you're quite a Jane Austen fan, and I'm always curious about the authors who we live with, you know, um, sometimes for our, our entire lives, because sometimes those authors, you know, can feel like friends or family, actually. Mm-hmm. So I wondered what it is about Jane Austen that you're drawn to, and is, you know, is Jane Austen a friend or family member for you? Absolutely. Even you just saying her name gave me a little flutter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am a Janeite. I'm a proper member of the Jane Austen Society of North America. Um, I have done the whole thing where we, you know, went to the museum and went to the homes where she lived in England. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing I would say is that she's just very comforting to me. Um, she's always just been very comforting to, to, um, to me. I love to read for comfort. Um, she does feel like um, a family member. It's hard for me to talk about her. Um, and my kids get really frustrated because it's hard for me to talk about her <laughs> without crying because she means so much to me. She really just means so much to me. She is my main influence. And not not that someone would flip through my pages and feel like they were reading Jane Austen. But what I mean is um, she means so much to me. And then I am so interested in how she shapes her stories, how she looks for the good in people. She's very honest about people, um, but her books are not so dark and heavy and depressing without any light at all. She really gets and understands people. And I also really love the way that she writes in a way that's funny and serious and sweet and romantic, kind of all wrapped up. And so that really inspires me as a writer. And I just love her books. I love being surrounded by her books. And I pretty much buy every copy of Pride and Prejudice I see. I think I have about 25 copies at this point. Thank you so much for that. You know, when you describe Jane Austen's traits, I can't remember all the adjectives, but I think they, they are all in your writing. You do. You do measure up <laughs> oh, so, to Jane you, Austen. Thank you. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back with today's book trend. This week's trend is a bit of a curiosity to me, Brooke, and that's unsold books having an afterlife as decoration. This was recently written up in the Washington Post, and the story was about these businesses that buy tractor trailer loads of new unsold books, buying them for literal pennies, and then reselling them to retailers and and restaurants and, and other places of commerce who are apparently using these books for decor. So there's a market for new unsold unread books being used as a replacement for wallpaper, basically. Yeah, it is, as you said, a curiosity. You know, books are very cool right now. I think books have always been well-loved, but it's a marker of being cool these days, actually, Mm. to have a lot of books. I don't know if you know. I'm cool. I'm cool. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is partly the effect of social media and younger generations making book culture cutting edge. So it wasn't surprising to me in this era of Instagram and book talk that books as decor would be a natural outgrowth of an aesthetic. And it's a good thing, ultimately, because those books, you know, if they're not being repurposed, are going to be destroyed. Um, new unsold books get pulped by necessity and they end up in landfills. And so, you know, it's one of the most distressing things about this industry actually is the sheer volume of excess and paper waste. So this trend has a really positive environmental impact as well. 
Hmm. The, the Washington Post story shared that this one guy sold two miles of books as decor to more than a hundred locations of restoration hardware, which is just really, really amazing. And I, I'm going to start paying more attention to books as decor as I get back into the world. You know, we have a restoration hardware here in Berkeley, and they do have a very modern, clean design aesthetic, and and so walls of books make sense there. Brooke, as, as a publisher, do you see any? Are there any downsides to this trend? What downsides could there be? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, excess inventory and unsold books are just a reality of this industry as much as I hate it. Uh, you know, I noted actually how the article said that occasionally someone grouses that these resellers are disrespecting books by selling them as decor. Uh, but I would say we're actually disrespecting trees by overprinting books, <laughs> you know, even if it's a necessary evil of our industry. Uh, you know, we don't want to overprint, but it's not possible to hit the right levels of inventory all the time. So I sort of see this is bringing it full circle and who knows you know maybe someone at some restoration hardware or restaurant will get drawn into one of those titles on the wall and end up actually looking up the book or even buying the book on you know a retailer so there could actually be some like um unsung discoverability methods going on here I like book decor as an unsung discoverability method. <laughs> it's spoken like a true publisher, Brooke. Always looking for those discoverability moments. Well, with that, we are going to be here next week and every week for years to come to come to talk <laughs> about books, whether they're used as decor, as a step stool, as a place to hide money or to read, which we highly recommend. So please keep listening to us on your favorite podcasting platform. You know where to find us. You know what that platform is. And we thank you for finding us and making it to this very last second of the show.